0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: It's supposed to be easy and even routine. Turn the faucet and clean water is supposed to flow. But we know here in Michigan that too often that's just not the case. Or at least there's doubt that what comes out of the tap is safe to drink or cook or wash with. We're supposed to be cleaning that all up by replacing lead line water lines, and that effort just got a $3 billion boost. We're gonna talk today with a water quality expert and a state senator from Flint about what it all means. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So when you turn on your faucet, you expect clean, drinkable water to come out of it. It's something that many of us take for granted, and there's good reason for that. It's because for decades in this country, that has been true. And for the most part, everyone has been able to enjoy that expectation. But we know here in Michigan that clean, affordable drinking water is just not a given. Not when our underground infrastructure is left to rot while government officials fail to put health and safety ahead of financial considerations. The Flint water crisis certainly proved that. And we continue to see the devastating effects of that policy today in Benton Harbor. And the question is, who's next? In fact, we found high lead levels in communities all across Michigan. And if we don't do something soon, another city will be the next Flint or Benton Harbor. But there's now a renewed effort to finally do the hard work to make sure that our underground water infrastructure is safer. Earlier this month, the Michigan Senate unanimously approved $3.3 billion to improve water infrastructure, including replacing lead pipes all around the state. This would be an enormous investment in underground infrastructure. And there's also a push underway to make sure that money from the new federal infrastructure bill also goes toward replacing lead pipes. So how far will all of this go? Will it be enough? Will we finally be at a place where we're not waiting, waiting and waiting to see which city is the next Flint? or the next benton harbor that's what we are going to talk about for most of the hour today a little later we're going to hear from michigan senate democratic leader jim ananick of flint about these efforts as well as his renewed push to repeal michigan's emergency manager law which played such a key role in the flint water crisis but first i want to welcome someone else who has been working hard on these issues for a number of years. Elin Batonzo is a Detroit-based water quality expert and former Environmental Protection Agency official who helped expose the Flint water crisis in the first place. She's also the founder of the Safe Water Engineering Consulting Firm. Elin Batonzo, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Good morning.
1: Thank you for having me. So I want to start with your overall reaction to this $3.3 billion supplemental bill for water infrastructure in Michigan. That's a big number. What kind of dent will it make in the problem that we have?
2: Yes, it is very exciting to uh, consider $3.3 billion for water infrastructure here in Michigan, and $1 billion of that is uh, set aside for replacing lead service lines. We estimate that there's around 460,000 lead service lines in the state of Michigan. And so some of the cost estimates we have for replacing all of them is $2.5 billion. So this $1 billion is is the biggest influx ever, and uh, it's going to get us ramped up and going, but it's not going to get us all the way there. Uh, Over the past few years, uh, the Whitmer administration has been um, pushing lead service line replacement and the legislature has been putting money towards that. So I think at this point, with money put in up to date with this additional one billion dollars, we might be at the point where we've got funding to get half of the lead service lines out in Mm. Michigan.
1: Wow. So I want to back up just a little bit and talk about. What has happened over, let's say, the last 40 or 50 years in Michigan that brought us to this point? I think in a lot of people's minds, this becomes an issue when in Flint, all of a sudden the entire city is exposed to lead poisoning because of a really awful set of decisions made by the emergency manager in that city to switch the water supply. But in, in so many ways, I think we all should know that it doesn't start there. The narrative doesn't begin there. This is about a long-term cycle of disinvestment. And I want to kind of lay that out for our listeners uh, before, we, before we get too far in the conversation.
2: Right. Well, it's important to think about uh, why we have lead service lines that deliver water to homes. So service lines are the small diameter pipes that connect a water main in the street to an individual house. So at the beginning of the 1900s uh, through about the 1950s, lead service lines were very popular for uh, connecting homes to water supplies. And these are pipes that are solid lead? And we know that lead is a potent, irreversible neurotoxin. And unfortunately, you can't see, smell, or taste lead in drinking water. Lead pipes were used because they're very durable. They, they're great in our climate. They they're soft, they bend with the, the freeze and thaw cycles and they last. So these lead pipes have been in for a long time, but every time you've got water in contact with lead, some of that lead is going to get into the water. And that means that a home that gets all their water through a lead service line has a real increased risk of lead in the water. And this has actually always been true, but the Flint water crisis really illustrated this uh, very clearly because that water switch there, There was corrosion control before they switched to not having corrosion control, and you could see that spike. You could see the health impact in that community. But every time there is a lead service line, even when we're not talking about Flint, there is a constant risk of lead in the drinking water in those homes.
1: And really, we should have started a long time ago thinking about what else to do correct I mean this is an yeah. emergency now where we're rushing to try to get all these pipes out but but over the last several decades, as we learned more about the dangers of having yes. these lead pipes we should have been we should have been fixing that
2: yeah unfortunately, our regulations for lead and drinking water nationally are not that great. We've got a lead and copper rule from 1991 that um, from the EPA, And it does not require getting the lead lines out. If we had started removing lead service lines in 1991, we'd probably be done by now. (laughs) Um, And we'd be a lot closer to having safer water, but that was never required. Um, We're actually looking forward to some uh, potential changes this week from the EPA. But uh, Michigan got out ahead of this, and Michigan uh, is the first state in the country to have a requirement to replace all the lead service lines. Mm -hmm.
1: Um so I want to talk about uh the federal infrastructure bill and how much money that's pumping into into not just Michigan but but all all states in terms of catching up on that. Do you think that will be as much or more of a boost for these efforts to get lead lines out of the ground as this as this 3.3 billion dollar supplemental bill in Lansing?
2: So the Federal funding, so some of some of the 1 billion we're gonna have in Michigan is from federal, but we've got $15 billion uh, for lead service line replacement in the infrastructure bill. And that again, these investments are the biggest uh we've ever had for lead service line replacement ever. And so nationally, that's going to be a huge boost. Um, One thing that I have noticed in the past is when, Just when money becomes available, it doesn't necessarily get to the right places, and uh, it's really helpful to have that combination of money and requirements for making sure that all the lead service lines get out, even for the most vulnerable communities and most vulnerable residents who are sometimes hard to reach. And sometimes you're not going to get that unless you also have requirements. So I'm hoping that we get some better requirements at the national level so the, the rest of the country can enjoy some of what we're starting to enjoy here in michigan with these requirements for lead
1: service line replacement and as you said we are the first state to require moving removing all of these lead service lines and the timeline originally was to get them all out of the ground in the next 20 years i wonder if you can talk about what the timeline would will look like now are we on track were we on track i guess uh, before this money was was allocated to make that deadline and maybe does this move the deadline up in other words will we will we get it done before that 20 year deadline
2: so this year, 2021, is the first year in which Michigan uh, water systems were required to start meeting that uh, average of 5% replacement rate per year. So this is the first year. So I don't think the data are in yet for uh, how many lead service lines have been replaced in Michigan this year. So that'll be uh, coming up soon since we're nearing the end of the calendar year and that reporting is going to be required to start. Um With the additional funding, definitely funding has been a source of delay or, you know, how are we going to do this? When we have fewer of those questions, we can get it done faster. And another thing, as we've been looking at the benefits of lead service line replacement, the sooner you get the lead lines out, the sooner you realize the the health and financial benefits of lead service line replacement. So I am really hopeful that the new funding will help water utilities front load and get it done faster.
1: Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Elon Batonzo, who is a water quality expert based here in Detroit. She is a former environmental protection agency official who is one of the people who helped expose the Flint water crisis. She's also the founder of the Safe Water Engineering consulting firm. Uh, We're talking about the investments that we're about to make in water infrastructure here in Michigan. $3.3 billion allocated by the legislature to help boost the efforts to replace all of the underground water infrastructure that we have so much trouble with uh, here in the state. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us what you feel like when you turn the tap in your home and drink the water that comes out of it. Do you assume that it's clean and safe? Uh, If you do, uh, tell me how much you worry about clean and safe drinking water coming out of the taps given what's happening right now in Benton Harbor on the other side of the state and what happened uh, a few years ago in Flint, Michigan. Uh, What would you like local, state, and federal officials to be doing to make sure that everyone has access to safe and affordable water? And do you sense that we're reaching a turning point here in Michigan in terms of making those big financial investments in replacing lead lines and cleaning up polluted sites, really getting our act together uh, when it comes to uh, water safety and health. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET uh, Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. I want to read a couple of uh, social media social media uh, comments here. A listener on Twitter writes, uh, groundwater got poisoned too, but we will never see accountability for that either. I don't know that I know exactly what that listener is referring to. Uh, Elon Batonzo, can you tell us, what, is there something we should be concerned about with groundwater as well as uh, as drinking water?
2: Well, I, I guess I would... Guess that that listener is referring to when we do have contaminated aquifers. Um, we've had, you know, several instances of groundwater being contaminated as, across the state of Michigan. And we've got a lot of residents on private wells here, and when those uh, aquifers become contaminated, they need to either invest in treatment at their homes for that private water system or uh, pay a lot of money to connect to the nearest municipal water system, and that's, that's not a small thing. So there's definitely concerns about this, but holding the polluters accountable for that contamination has been difficult.
1: Hmm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. I wonder uh, when we talk about things like PFAS, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. which is another pollutant that we're finding more and more of here in our, our water sources in the, in the Great Lakes, again, whether that kind of contamination and pollution is something that this money will focus on? Or is it again, something that we're just not yet as focused on as we should be to make sure that uh, we're not polluting drinking sources?
2: Yeah, so there a is $100 billion uh, for PFAS in this $3.3 billion water infrastructure funding package. And so that includes uh, remediation grants, Um, a testing facility and uh, remediation for a a specific PFAS site at Muskegon Lake. So there is some of this. And in some of the uh, Michigan infrastructure funding, there's a specific fund that has been set aside for residents on private wells to connect to water systems because of PFAS contamination. So, There are some pots of money for that. And hopefully they are growing to match the better data that we are getting about the ubiquitousness of PFAS in our uh, groundwater.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about water quality, investment in water, infrastructure here in michigan Uh, we will also get to more of your comments and calls the calls are starting to queue up here we'll start with nick in southfield when we get back you can also go to facebook or twitter and put comments there and uh, we can work end into the conversation that way stay tuned we'll be right back with more detroit today Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Elin Batanza. She's a Detroit-based water quality expert and former Environmental Protection Agency f- official who helped expose the Flint water crisis. She's also the founder of the Safe Water Engineering Consulting firm. Uh, we're talking about the new 3.3 billion dollar boost that the uh, state legislature has um, uh, decided to, to give to water quality efforts here in Michigan, trying to uh, really improve the water infrastructure on a number of different fronts. We wanna hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us how confident you are when you turn the faucet in your home, that the water that comes out is safe to drink or or do other things with. Think of the people in cities like Benton Harbor, uh, where right now, that's really not the case and hasn't been for a very long time. Think about what we learned about Flint uh, just a few years ago in terms of how badly poisoned the water supply was there. Uh, All of us in this state really are just a few errors in judgment, a few mishaps perhaps away from the idea that uh, the water that comes out of our taps is not safe. Uh, This money is intended Uh, to make that less of a reality for us. Uh, Give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Tell us what you want uh, public officials to be doing about the uh, underground infrastructure, the age of it, uh, the fact that there's still lead lines in so many places, Uh, and also tell us what kind of confidence you have that this kind of money will be spent the right way. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and uh, um, and put comments there and we can work into the conversation. I want to start with Nick, uh, who is a caller who could not stay on the line, but he wants to know why Benton Harbor is having these problems, but no other community on that side of the state. Um, Elon, I think that's an interesting question. We see this cropping up in certain communities and not others uh, I think it's also important to note that the communities that we have seen so far dealing with this are uh, communities that have a, a fair amount of poverty and uh, they're both uh, majority African American uh, cities something that a lot of people have noted how come we don't see this everywhere or what I guess what is it that triggers something like Benton Harbor I think we all know what happened in Flint now no one seems to be very clear on why Benton Harbor is having all of these problems and other other places are not.
2: Right. So we're seeing the higher sustained lead levels in communities that do have a lot of lead service lines. So the older cities, um, the communities closer to Detroit of Benton Harbor have higher number of lead service lines. So it's just a combination of having the lead in the pipes in the distribution system and a combination of factors at the water treatment plant. So we do have corrosion control strategies that can reduce the amount of lead that releases from lead pipes, but it's never foolproof. This is why we should always treat every lead service line as a risk. But in some areas that corrosion control treatment is not as effective as in others, um, Ben Harbor right now is having a lot of challenges at their water treatment plant. It is not limited just to corrosion control for lead. They actually have several issues going on. EPA issued a unilateral administrative order uh, that details fundamental issues across the board at their water treatment plant. And so when the water treatment plant itself is not working as intended, it's really hard to have process control, have consistent water quality. And then the materials that are in the distribution system that lead is just going to leach into the water at much higher rates. But um, to get back to your question about why don't we see it as much in the other communities? Well, it's the older communities. If you look at the Detroit service area, the older, closer in uh, uh, communities from the city of Detroit, are having lead action level exceedances, but they're they're bumping in and out of lead action level exceedances from compliance sampling period to compliance sampling period. So they're all like right around that edge of oh the lead is high enough to trigger additional action. Oh the lead now it's low. Dearborn Heights is one. Royal Oak Township, Saint Clair Shores, Hamtramck, uh, Highland Park. These are have all been kind of hovering around that lead action level exceedance. And so it's that combination. Sometimes it's the number of lead service lines and sometimes it's, you know, really big issues at the water treatment plant. Hmm. Um,
1: I want to take another caller who has a related question right now. Uh, Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show.
3: Uh, Hi, Stephen. Uh, Hello to your guests. Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment that, Years ago, a doctor told me we were talking about the safety of drinking water, and he said that there's really no place in Michigan that you can go and get clean, contaminant-free drinking water because of our history of agriculture and industry. Um, but there, there is a, a place, there is an organization. It's a consumer advocacy organization called the Environmental Working Group, and you can go to ewg.org and um, type in your zip code, and they have a listing the database of pollutants by zip code by county state
1: yeah melissa uh really appreciate the call and uh the info there uh elin i I just want to make sure that's the the right information for everyone too or if there's more information people ought to have
2: well Water systems are required to put out a consumer confidence report every year, uh, uh, commonly known as a water quality report. And a lot of that information that um, EWG publishes is from those consumer confidence reports. And so I would recommend if you're on a municipal water system, going to your water system website or they should be mailing that publication to you every year. It usually comes out um, late spring, early summer, and that will give you a lot of information about the sampling that they're doing, any violations that they're having. And I also encourage listeners to call their water system and ask their questions. I often talk to water systems and they say, oh, well, we don't hear from our consumers. We only hear if they're complaining about a water bill. They're not asking these questions. So the more they hear these questions the more they'll understand that they need to uh, do more proactive outreach describing what they are doing at the water system to make sure that the water is safe so I highly encourage that conversation Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: again 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones let's go to Bernadette in old Redford Bernadette welcome to the show
3: Thank you, Stephen. My question is concerning bottled water. I see people running to Sam's or Costco and loading up their cart, and I wonder what kind of regu- one, where that water comes from, and two, uh, what kind of regulations um, cover bottled water?
1: Hmm. Great yeah. question. It is a
2: good question. <laughs> um, so bottled water is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. It's not regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act like our water utilities are. So there's less frequent sampling, um, and it's uh, less stringent. My, I strongly feel that there... There is a place for bottled water. It should be rare. It should be available in emergencies when we need it. But my preference always is to go to tap water because um, we need to support this infrastructure. It is well regulated. And some, if you have a lead service line, you should be using a filter at your home. Um, the bottled water, if it comes from a spring uh, source, it's it can have contaminants in it that are not measured. If I'm using bottled water, I actually prefer to buy bottled water that is actually bottled from a municipal system. A lot of bottled water brands, they're taking treated water, they're running through an additional cleaning process like reverse osmosis, and then they're bottling it. Hmm. So uh, when you're looking to make sure you've got a safe source of bottled water, that's my go-to. Hmm. Uh,
1: again, 313 is the number here on the phones. Let's go now to Ed in Detroit. Ed, what's on your mind?
4: Good conversation. Thanks. Uh, I've often wondered why when we do these major public works projects like highways and water systems, we don't set aside an endowment to cover future maintenance and repair costs. I think I know why. It's called tomorrowism. But my purpose of my call was to ask your guest, guest, whether any of the money – that the federal government and the state are setting aside for water um, work situations is is uh, uh, being steered toward First Nation reservations because, frankly, many of them—I don't know about the ones in Michigan, but out west, many of them have third-world water problems. Hmm. Huh. I'll listen on the radio.
1: Yeah, Ed, that's a really interesting uh, question. I, I I don't know much about that issue, especially here in in Michigan. Elon, I wonder if you can shed some light for us.
2: Yes, there are federal dollars that are set aside for tribal water systems. Um, that's allocated through a separate process uh, because tribal water systems are on reservations, and they're um, it's a government to government relationship rather than a federal to state relationship. So it's an entirely different set aside process, but there is funding. Um, I have not looked at the dollars specifically that will be going to tribes in Michigan for that, but there, that there is a process for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I also want to give you a chance, uh, elena to talk about Benton Harbor a bit, and um, what what the state's response has been? How how well has the state dealt with this crisis? And were there things that we learned during the Flint water crisis that have made some of the suffering in Benton Harbor um, maybe less because government was was more prepared?
2: Yeah, so in Benton Harbor right now, all of the residents are encouraged. I I highly encourage everyone to be using bottled water for drinking water for all consumptive use, toothbrushing, washing your food, cooking, all of that. Anytime you're using water, you're putting in your body, use bottled water in Benton Harbor. And that's because of some of the, the unique things going on there with the water treatment plant and the lead. Um, So just wanting to be clear that Benton Harbor is a unique situation right Uh now. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've got a commitment to get, well, we, there is the commitment for bottled water there. It's being uh, delivered and uh, there's the pickup site. So that rolled out pretty quickly. Um, We've got a commitment to get all the lead pipes out in Benton Harbor within 18 months. And that's huge. I would, that's a when you look at other cities that have been having lead crises, it usually takes um, uh, uh, legal action or something. And right now, we got in Michigan, we got that commitment um, right away, and we've got that funding coming in. So we're on top of that in Benton Harbor right now. So I am pleased with the response that we're getting uh, and that accelerated. Uh, recognition of what needs to happen to, to make this right
1: in Benton Harbor right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to take one more quick call before uh, we have to end our segment. Uh, Elon uh, Gracie in Highland park. Welcome to the show. Thank you
3: for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very concerned in Highland park about the quality of our water. We had a water emergency in 2019. However, uh, testing has supposedly shown that the water Uh, quality is better um we doubt that you know because of the nature of testing and sampling um other communities that have had water issues like highland park we're very old um have uh been on a list you know for these emergency replacements like benton harbor and and um you know now Hamtramck. but Mm. highland park has always been a city that's overlooked you know in terms of uh of uh, dealing with this yes. uh, water quality issue, and so so, so you know, Gracie I wanted her to talk about test, uh, testing and sampling.
1: Sure. Yeah. No. I think uh, that's a great question, but I but I also want to give you a chance to talk a little more about what you what you doubt and why there in, in Highland Park. What makes you feel like things are not going well?
3: Because of the way uh, water moves, you hmm. know, and test like, testing and sampling. I don't I don't feel as if that's an accurate way of um, dealing with this issue. We okay. need an emphasis on getting the let uh, uh, lines out of the communities, you know, sure. and I think we're spending all this money on testing and, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, isn't really effective.
1: Yeah. Okay, Gracie, I really appreciate the call and the perspective from, from Highland Park. Uh, Elin, um, uh, talk about what uh, Gracie is raising here and, and how citizens who have these kind of concerns ought to be raising them with their elected officials. Yeah, well,
2: I'd say, Gracie is exactly right. The issue is the lead pipes. And until we get the lead pipes out, there's still gonna be lead in the water. So when we really focus on the sampling and say, oh, is is it a lead action level exceedance? Is it not a lead action level exceedance? That's really not the information that we need. It's, am I drinking water through a lead pipe? And until that lead pipe is gone, I'm constantly at risk. So, uh, when, and some of the data from Highland Park showed they did have that lead action level exceedance, now it's gone. These, They've removed some lead service lines, but they still have a long way to go to get the rest of the lead service lines out. And nothing has changed about the water quality going to Highland Park. And so that's why we should all be a little suspicious about the testing. So it's important to know, do I have a lead service line at my home? If I do, I should be using a filter and I should be working with my water utility to get that lead line out as soon as possible. Yeah.
1: Okay, Elin Batonzo, always great to have you here with us. On Detroit today to talk about these really important water quality issues. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah,
2: thanks a lot for having me.
1: We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, State Senate Democratic Leader Jim Ananick is going to join me to talk about the $3.3 billion package to replace lead lines in cities like his hometown of Flint. We'll also talk about his renewed push to repeal Michigan's emergency manager law, which of course played a really key role in the Flint water crisis. Stay back, stay tuned. (laughs) We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDTM Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about uh, water quality all across the state of Michigan and the underground water infrastructure that has so much to do with that water quality. Uh, we were talking earlier about the state Senate approving $3.3 billion to help improve water infrastructure here in Michigan, including removing lead lines in places all over the state. Uh, we're talking about whether that's enough. Uh, is, is there more that we need to be doing and what is on that list of more that we need to be doing to make sure that water is clean and drinkable when we turn the faucets in our home? Uh, I want to welcome another voice to this conversation, and it's one that's really at the center of it from a number of of different perspectives. Senator Jim Ananick is a Democrat from Flint Township who represents Michigan's 27th state Senate district. Uh, Senator Ananick, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Yeah, actually, I, that's wrong, isn't it? Uh, you are from Flint, not from oh, Flint yeah. Township. Born and <laughs> raised. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and, and as I said, you sit at the center of this in a number of ways. One is, of course, your leadership role in the state Senate, but the other is a fact that you and your family were subject to the consequences of uh, the Flint water crisis, like, uh, like everyone else who lived here. So it's really great to have you here. Uh, yeah, of course. To share your perspective. So let's start here. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the state Senate approved $3.3 billion for water infrastructure. Remind us again, what's in that bill and what it means for these efforts to replace lead service lines?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, the, the ARPA, the American Rescue Plan, um, uh, put significant resources back into our state and the uh, infrastructure uh, bill added even more. So we, you know, we approved, um, as you mentioned, 3.3 million for, you know, a number of different projects, uh, basically anything underground uh, to help uh, with our infrastructure related to water. And, and so many other things, uh, you know, uh, sewer and other things of that nature, which have long been ignored, both here in Michigan, but across the country. And you know, under the leadership of Joe Biden and, and frankly, Democrats, because it was largely uh, a Democratic uh, voted on plan, um, we're going to actually start to make some real investments. And, and we have a, a bill also that I'm working on with Kurt Vanderwall um, that would, what we call, filter first which would put filters in schools and daycare centers uh, as we investigate uh, about whether there's uh, lead in the system. Uh, We've, we've just come to the conclusion that, you know, taking all the precautions you can take first by putting that filter on there, making sure those kids are safe and then investigating about whether there's issues is a much more cost-effective and safer way of making sure our most vulnerable communities when it comes to lead are, uh, are taken care of. And, And then to your point earlier too, about the lead service lines, Uh, Between the infrastructure package and what we've already approved, uh, I'm very, uh, I feel very, I don't want to say confident, but very hopeful that we'll have enough resources to make sure every community can feel uh, that their water quality, uh, at least when it comes to lead, uh, will no longer be something they're questioning anymore, uh, because we'll be able to to make those investments to remove those lines. Uh, And I think that's really critical. Uh, The more we learn about lead, the more we know. We have to make sure we uh, we we keep it away from people's uh, water system for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this bill also tries to help address some of the flooding issues in places like here in southeast Michigan, Metro Detroit. Uh, Talk about the kind of projects that will get funding that would would help with that. That's another huge infrastructure issue that we were reminded of quite vividly this summer
0: yeah no question about it and that's actually within the speaker's uh of the speaker of the office's district so it's something he and senator thomas and really frankly all of us um are are, um, are concerned about so it would just help uh both with uh repair and removal and replacement of dams uh basically anything that relates to our infrastructure that's not uh road related we're we're, we're touching in some way and i think it's really important because you know, we made some of these investments, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago, and we basically just put band-aids on them. Uh, and now for the first time, we're actually going to start to make real investments in in the quality uh, and the, and the ability to make sure that these things last. Uh, hopefully we continue to do you know, maintenance on them. So we don't have a, another issue like we did in, in Midland, uh, you know, and I, I hope that uh, we make sure that we're, you know, we're holding folks accountable uh, both people that operate the dams, but also, ourselves to make sure that we continue to make investments. Now, this isn't a one-time thing and we're done.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, We have to make sure we continue to keep people safe, especially with our climate changing. I mean, we're seeing more and more issues that we have to, to make sure we have resiliency in our system. And hopefully we can work on that too.
1: So all of these efforts are aimed at accelerating, I guess, the, the efforts to upgrade uh, water infrastructure in in the state and and to deal with it from a systemic level, right? And, and that's right. From the, the the standpoint of everybody's needs, but I want to go back for a second and talk specifically about Flint. We we don't hear as much about Flint as we used to in the news, no. and and uh, you know I think some people's conclusion from that is well, we solved that problem and and we can move on. But I I actually doubt. That that's fully the case. I want to give you just a little bit of time to talk about what is going on in Flint with efforts to replace lead lines and and keep people safe. And then again, to make the people of Flint whole in some way for, you know, the damage that they, they suffered from the water crisis.
0: Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, I think you know, you, you, were, you were covering this in the beginning, uh, you covered it in the midterm and you're still talking about it where a lot of folks parachuted in and, and uh, we were sort of the story of the day and then and they moved on to other things, just what happens sometimes. But I appreciate our home state folks that never stopped, you know, caring about Flint and, and making sure the story was still being talked about. So um, from a lead service line replacement standpoint, we're about 99% of the way done. Mostly what's left is folks that the uh, city has not been able to contact communicate to get the permission. Uh, but very, very soon we should have that completely finished, which is a positive. Um, one thing that I don't know how exactly we, I have some ideas, but I, is, is to how do we build the trust? You know, a lot of folks still just won't use their, uh, their drinking water. You still want to use uh, a bottle of water or even filtered water or some won't even do that. Uh, we have to figure out a way to make sure people have a better understanding of the quality of the water. Uh, and and have it from verifiable sources that isn't just the government telling them to trust us, because uh, they probably will never do that again. Um, <clears throat> and um, um there was a third thing I was going to mention that is escaping me. Maybe I'll think of it in a second. But yeah. um, I think oh the um, uh, the accountability piece right. So there's there's still the criminal investigations going on. The charges have been uh, there's been the charges, but the on the civil side um, we were able to uh, the governor well the attorney general. Uh, office and the governor were able to uh, negotiate the largest settlement uh, in the history of Michigan uh, for the Flint water crisis. And there's still a number of uh, entities that are not part of that settlement. So the the numbers will likely get bigger as well, but just under 650 million families in Flint. Um, And I think that's, that's moving in the right direction. There was a little troubling, um, Dr. Lawrence Reynolds, who's really been just a pioneer, a civil rights pioneer, a tremendous pediatrician uh, has raised concerns about This bone scan that folks were using. Uh, It's an untested, uh, not not meant for humans. They were using it on families to determine whether or not they had lead in their system. Uh, And a lot of us, myself included, uh, were very concerned about uh, that being a a measurement tool to determine, (coughs) excuse me, um, lead exposure when it's not meant for humans. And it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not a recognized, a largely recognized tool. That um, and we're going to keep working on that as well. But um, you know, the the obviously, I wish the settlement would have even been larger. But um, sometimes you have to deal with uh, you know the plaintiffs, the folks that were suing, uh, were willing to settle for that amount. So they obviously are the lawyers for the people, uh, and the state, um, you know, uh, was able to to come to an agreement. So uh, I think that's a step in the right direction.
1: Hmm. Yeah uh again as always the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019 call and talk about what you think of of the efforts to improve uh, underground infrastructure here in the state of michigan so that uh, our water systems are safer and uh, healthier for for all of us you can also go to facebook or or twitter and put comments there um, to uh, to become part of the program that way. Uh, I, I also want to ask you, Jim, about your new push to repeal Michigan's emergency manager law. It's a law that gets almost no attention anymore, and I think there's an, kind of an irony to that. I, I, I can't imagine a governor uh, resorting to that law at this point, given what happened in Flint and the, the the sort of terrible consequences of it, but it is still on the books uh, and, and you think it shouldn't be.
0: Yeah. So I have two bills that I put put before the legislature. I've either sponsored or co-sponsored emergency manager appeal. Um, I think basically every session I've been in the legislature, but this year I'm working with treasury to, to also come up with what we call an early warning system so that communities that are having financial distress they can get the tools they need much, much earlier. Mm-hmm. So we don't get in a situation where it's it's reached an emergency status. And, and former Governor Schneider's team, uh, Governor Whitmer's team, have all said, we're never going to use 436. That, that's the emergency managed law. My response back is, and let's get rid of it. But right? if everyone's acknowledging they're never going to use it again because of what happened in my community, then why keep it on the books, right? Mm-hmm. Let's actually get rid of it and come up with a, a, a tool to make sure that if something gets you know, dire and the taxpayers um, you need some sort of uh, emergency process, which almost every state has some version of. Let's put one in place that would actually work and not take away every voice of the citizen and give complete power to one individual with what appears to have no accountability because there's no direct real link to figure out who they report to other than just sort of this nebulous treasury. Um, we need to have a system in place that texts people, gives an early warning and, and uh, provides tools and help along the way. And of course, you know, at some point down the road, if they just, if every step has failed, you have to have some measure to make sure that the taxpayers are protected. But we saw that the emergency manager law in its current form has failed miserably. Hmm.
1: And that idea of and making sure that cities have what they need to survive as cities from a financial standpoint, that is something that we have, been talking about for an awful long time in this state and really never have have pivoted to the point where we're reinvesting in cities. If you think of the way in which we have um, uh, eaten into the money that cities used to be able to count on that they would get from the state, for instance, just to keep themselves afloat. Um, you know, the trend has been downward for such a long time, and there, there really has not been much conversation, even in Lansing, about hey, we we ought to we ought to make sure cities don't fall into this position in the first place.
0: 100, and we've basically set cities and local governments up to fail. Um, I'm actually working now, trying to get some uh, some uh, trying to get some relief for, for local governments, not just cities, but all local governments. Over almost 30 percent of local governments, their pension systems under 60. Uh, percent and that's largely due to state revenue sharing cuts over the last twenty to thirty years. Um, and you know, you know, I, I learned a lot about uh, pensions and liability uh, over the last few years. Looking into this, you know, you can't. Uh, and in 2017, we passed a law called Public Act 202 that requires that we aggregate the total amount of liability and pay it off sooner. But if without increases in revenue, you're going to see these huge payments for cities like Flint and other communities. And it's all over the state. It's not just in cities. It's in little communities in the U.P. on the west side of the state up north, uh, where they just, their pension system's underfunded. I'm trying to reach consensus with my colleagues to uh, make an investment in that, uh, to get those pension systems on on the 60% track, which is basically the the mark you need to get back in the right direction. So you don't have such a huge payment every year, but you sort of spread it out over a longer period of time and it's manageable and you, you don't have to cut services. Because at the end of the day, local governments are creatures of the state, right? And we have our home rule law. Mm-hmm. We, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the state has a ultimate responsibility if these things uh, don't get uh, taken care of. It's better to do it now and get people on the right track and make that investment. And then I think long-term, we need to make sure we have a more stable revenue source for local governments uh, so they can control their own destiny. Because that's where you get most of your services at. Most people, you know, they think of the garbage man, the police officer, the firefighter water and sewer departments, they don't, you know, they, they, they get services from the state. They get services from the federal government. But like most people's day-to-day interaction with governments at the local level, and I think we need to make sure we give them the tools and the, and the, and the uh, resources uh, to make sure that they can provide the services most people want.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so I wonder what you think the prospects are for repealing the EM law and then replacing it with something that would give cities and other local governments more help. Yeah, I feel
0: like I've got a decent track on the early warning system. Um, The the problem with the EM law, just to be frank, is Mm -hmm. I have very good support in the House. I had it last session with Speaker Chatfield. He actually encouraged me to do it. Um, And uh, I think I have a shot at this term as well. The problem is the Senate, where a number of my colleagues are still around who voted for the original law. Mm -hmm. And there's this weird phenomenon sometimes where If you ever go back and look at laws and say maybe it's time to make a change or uh, get rid of them altogether, people take that as some sort of knock on them. And I I just fundamentally believe everything we pass, we should have a, not saying we have to have a sunset on it, meaning it has to go away, but we should be looking at it one year down the road, three years, five, and say, did this work the way we wanted it to? And if it didn't, it's no one's fault. Let's just go back and make the changes. And in this case, I think it needs to be repealed. Yeah. And uh, so I'm going to push for it, uh, make a big push the first of the year when we get back from uh, from our break, or, you know, our, our holiday break. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm nervous that a lot of people in the Senate had voted for it and that they just will be unable to to bear, wrap their, their arms around it. Now, Senators Thomas and I put out a report a couple of years ago in the, in the Flint report that said this was necessary and hopefully that they'll help me push for it.
1: Okay, Senator Jim Ananick from Flint, uh, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow and we're going to talk with Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonnell about charges against Ethan Crumbly and his parents related to the mass school shooting at Oxford High School.